Our Bible reading this morning will be from Genesis 9, 1 through 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used brick instead of stone and tar <clears throat> for mortar. Then they said to each other, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So the Lord said, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. And the people stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the entire world. From there, the Lord scattered the people over the face of the whole earth. Amen. Go, Jill. That was amazing. Well, I think I heard one of our children's volunteers on the way out just a minute ago. Um, I wanted to thank them before we get up here. We've just pumped these kids full of sugar and sent them out to Children's Church. But I do appreciate Katie and all of our volunteers and what they do for us in serving our kids. So to begin our story this morning, I want to back up a little bit before the Tower of Babel to chapter 10, where there's this guy named Nimrod. And this is not a veiled dig on Father's Day, I promise you. This was planned months in advance. There's a guy named Nimrod. And in some ways, it's appropriate to Father's Day because Nimrod was the greatest man in the generations after the flood. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But that's not the extent of it. It's not just a superficial similarity to what we might consider a great man or a great ruler. He was powerful. He was a great king. He was a city builder, an empire ruler. He was one of those people in history that scholars for generations have tried to figure out who is this great person in history. And looking through our ancient epics that we have that speak about this same time period, people wonder if maybe this is the great Gilgamesh from the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the most ancient epics in human history. He's a giant demigod, city-building ruler who is a hero after a worldwide flood. Or there's another character whose name is Lugalbanda, which you can see why maybe he went by Nimrod instead, who is an ancient savior of cities and protector of his people. And whether or not we know who this is from history, we all know stories that speak of figures like Nimrod. King Arthur, Charlemagne, people in the past who have stood for a whole civilization wrapped up in this larger-than-life King of Kings figure. Nimrod is compared to the Babylonian god Marduk because his name and Marduk have the same root. He's a rebel ruler who sets himself against God. In fact, after the flood, there's 
really two bloodlines, two paths, two ways of living, and Nimrod represents the human way of living, that he decided he would begin his empire against the Lord and build a kingdom that would be known all over the world. And sure enough, in the short term, Nimrod was known all over the world. He, he was actually someone who goes down in the lore of the post-flood world as a great ruler and a great king. And so you need to know that he's the one we're talking about in this story to understand what's, what's happening in this master story of Genesis chapter 11. So this guy decides that he's going to build a kingdom in a plain called Shinar, which is the word Sumer. So we would say the Sumerian area, the flood basin between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. There's people that settle here, and they want to build a city. And we learn a lot about cities from this text. In fact, we could actually just do a whole sermon this morning about what do we learn about cities from this text. This is the first great look at human cities. And, and we learn a lot about cities and the way God sees cities from this passage. At this time in history, cities were not like you think of today. Today you think of a city, you think mostly like where people live, where there's things to do. If you go downtown in a city, that's where the infrastructure is, that's where the high-priced apartments are, that's where things are happening. But ancient cities were almost the reverse People would live outside the city where they could farm and raise animals, where they could cluster in small villages. And the city itself, nobody lived in the middle of the city. Instead, in the middle of the city, you would build what was really important to your group of people. Most of the time, in the center of a city, there would be a temple. And in this temple, people would come in and offer sacrifices and worship. And in this case, in this city of Babel, next to the temple complex, the people build a tower. And they build a giant tower because they think this tower is actually going to go up so high into the heavens that God and humanity are going to meet each other at the top of this temple. Now, we know from history that what they're describing here is what we would call, if you're in social studies class, a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is a step building. It's a, it's a precursor to the pyramids. And basically what they wanted was a set of stairs so that the gods could come down and the people could come up. And just to give you a sense of what they thought was happening in these ziggurats, at the top of these, and there are some of these that have been reconfigured and excavated from ancient Babylon, they would put a room, like a little hotel room, that had a bed and like a little kitchenette and some food and a place to wash yourself because it would be difficult work for the gods to travel all the way down here. So once they got out of the heavens, they'd probably need to stop and spend the night before they could come down to earth. <laughs> this is what people thought of the gods. And certainly, if you're doing kind of a jack-in-the-beanstalk type thing, you're going to need a stop-off before you get up into the heavens. So they're building this giant tower, and they're trying to reach up to the gods. And one of the first things we learn in this story is, what you build reveals what you value, right? What you build, what you put your time and your effort into, the things that are at the center of the city, the things that are at the center of your life reveal your values. And that ends up actually being the problem in this story is their values. Sometimes the Tower of Babel is taught like cities are bad 
or technology is bad, or human achievement is bad, or ambition is bad. But actually, what you're going to see through the rest of Scripture is all of those things are neutral. In fact, they can be good or they can be bad. We have a lot of instances of bad cities in the Bible. But you know the story ends in a city, the New Jerusalem. And and we have a lot of uh, examples of bad technology in the Bible. In fact, this building campaign, this ziggurat, was kicked off by a technological innovation. If you're looking at the beginning of this passage in Genesis 11, it doesn't seem all that significant to us, but the author tells us that they say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So the major technological advance was they now had mortar and hard enough bricks that they could build really tall buildings. It's like the invention of steel led to skyscrapers in cities. For them, this was the major technological achievement of their day, and they utilized it for what we're going to see later is a very destructive purpose. But what God is going to do later on is he's actually going to take things like this, tools and technology and innovation, and when they're utilized for his purpose, they become good things. So so it's not that they're building a city which is wrong. It's not that they're using technology which is wrong. It's not that they have ambition which is wrong. It's that there's something sinister at the center of this story. So Nimrod is the king of this area, and it tells us in this passage that his people decide that they're going to build a tower and the top is going to be up in the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves. We've got to make a name for ourselves. We have become so advanced. We have so much control over nature. We have so much ability that we need to capitalize on that and build a name for ourselves. And when you think about it, this from thousands of years ago to today is no different. If you read news about what's going on in certain technological sectors of our world, there's some really great things going on, and there's a lot of name building going on. There's a lot of things where we say, we have become the masters of nature, so let's do this. So they say, let's build a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower to the heavens, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, lest our plans be foiled. Let's build up to the top of the heavens. Now, another interesting thing that the Jews have noticed in this story through the ages is that after the flood, the people have settled in a flood basin. This is not the smartest place to build a city when there's just been a worldwide flood. And given that the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers constantly overflow their banks, you have to ask yourself, why are they building here? Well, one of the Jewish commentators puts this together and he says, Nimrod would seek revenge on God. If God would have a mind to drown the world again, he would build a tower so high that the water could never reach the top. He would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers, protecting humanity against the flood. See, Nimrod's ambitions are essentially a story of self-reliance. You can either depend on God Or you can depend on yourself. And Nimrod says, I'll take my chances depending on myself. The story looks less and less likely, like these people really wanted God to come down. It looks more likely that they actually wanted humanity to go up and take their rightful place as the masters 
of the universe. Today, we would call this humanism in the sense that human nature, mankind, is the measure of all things. We're going to build a tower to heaven because that's our rightful place. The building is, is motivated by the value that they don't need anyone else to justify or to satisfy their deepest desires. There's a clue at the beginning of this story that an ancient Jew would have heard this and they would have noticed some wordplay that we totally miss. We, we think the word Nimrod means like an idiot, which is kind of an ironic, funny piece of this story because that actually ends up being true. But for them, it, it means something slightly different. The word Nimrod, and, and in fact, later you have a, a town in the Assyrian Empire named Nimrud, means rebel. It means we will defy. We will rebel. And there's a podcast series right now on cities that the Bible Project has put out, and it's a good series. In the episode on Babel, they call it the biggest, baddest city in the Bible. And you know why that is, because the word Babel is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And everywhere else except for here, your English will read Babylon. Babylon. This is an origin story of the arch enemy city of the people of God. If you remember all through the Bible from this moment all the way through the book of Revelation, it's one of two ways, Jerusalem or Babylon, the city of God or the city of man, the city of goodness and righteousness and mercy and justice or the city of oppression and self-reliance and setting yourself up against God. This city, Babel, or Babylon, is the emblem of the refusal to fulfill the commission that God gave Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Do you remember how the book of Genesis opens? Adam and Eve are created by God. They're put in the Garden of Eden, and he gives them a command. He says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and cultivate it. It's an expansion project to take the glory of God in the garden and spread that all over the world. And now you have humanity after the floods have come and they wash the earth clean. Now you have humanity again defying God by saying, we're going to gather together and make a name for ourselves. Now from our vantage point, this is kind of a dumb idea. We're going to set ourselves up against God. We're going to do our things our own way. We're going to spite somebody who is infinitely more powerful than we are. But, but we do this. Right? We, th this, is, this is something we still do. It's, it's not a good idea to set yourself up against God. It's, it's really not a good idea to set yourself up against someone who is just stronger and more powerful and more cunning than you are. Amen. In fact, Laura and I know a guy who, when they first had kids, he was adjusting to dad life, and he had just gone back to work. He comes home, so not, not sleeping a ton, and he comes home from the office and his wife is sitting on the couch breastfeeding their new baby. And he kind of does that dad thing where you start to kind of look around at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock wondering what's the plan for dinner. And he doesn't see anything. So he makes the very ill-advised move of asking, what's the plan for dinner? And she says, I'm, you know, I'm busy, so I'll get to it in a minute. So he looks around a little bit and he's, kind of looking for snacks. He's like, have you even been to the store? There's nothing in the cabinets. His wife, as wives can do, just kind of sighs and says, you know what, there's some mac and cheese in the pantry. Just 
eat that. Make, make yourself a bowl of mac and cheese. So he goes in, and he gets the mac and cheese out, and he looks in the fridge. They don't even have any milk. And he's like, we don't even have any milk for the macaroni and cheese. And she says, you know what? You've had a hard day. Why don't you just sit down, and I'll make the mac and cheese. So he sits down, and after what seems like a really long time, she brings in this steaming hot bowl of macaroni and cheese. And as he's like to the bottom of this bowl, he starts getting that guilt coming on, like, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have been that way. And so he says, you know what? I'm really sorry, and I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. And on top of that, you had to go out and get the milk and come back and make the mac and cheese. And his wife goes, oh, I didn't go out to get any milk. So to set yourself up against somebody <laughs> who is more, more cunning, more ruthless, smarter than you are, not a great idea. Because chances are when this happens, you have an outcome just like he had, and an outcome that happens in Babel, you're going to get a dose of reality. And that's what happens in this story. If you look at the middle part of the story, the way that Jews like to tell stories in the, in the Bible and even to this day is we like to tell a story where you lead up to the very end and then everything makes sense. And the Jews like to tell stories where the high point of the story is actually in the middle. The most important part of the story is the middle. And everything else kind of comes down the slopes or up the slope afterwards. It's, in fact, what they do is they'll tell something and then they'll tell two or three things, and then you'll get the center of the story, and then they'll undo all of those things. So their, their stories are like a set of parentheses that they open and they close, and the middle is the most important part of the story. And if you look, the, the middle line of this story is in verse 5. You've got all of the effort of man in verses 1 through 4, and then all of a sudden, a new character starts to act in this story. And the Lord came down to see the city. And the Lord came down to see the city. Now, this probably is an example of some subtle trolling, because here we have these people who have built the highest tower imaginable up to the heavens where they are going to take their place among the gods. And the author of Genesis is telling us, and God had to come down to see it. It was so small in comparison that he's like a I think I need to get a closer look at what they're doing down there. And so God comes down and he sees the tower and he says to himself, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible. So what God does is he says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so God does come down and confuse their language, and they can't speak to each other anymore, so they spread out across the face of the earth, which is exactly what they were supposed to be doing this whole time. And what's interesting about this is if you're listening to this orally, especially if you're listening to it in Hebrew, what the people do and what God does are exactly the reverse. They say, let's get everybody together Come, let's make bricks, let's build a tower up to God, and we'll go up to him. God says, what are they doing down there? I better go down. Come, let us, same words, come, let us confuse their language, and we'll spread them out across the whole earth. God is undoing every single thing that they're doing. And some people read this story like God is all of a sudden threatened by what humanity is doing, like, oh no, 
If they could build a tower that high, what else could they do? But, but it's more like when you have two kids that are getting in trouble sitting next to each other and you say, if I leave those two together, there is no limit to the trouble that they're going to get in. So you separate them. And that's exactly what God does. He separates them. He says, for your own good and to stop this whole line of thinking, I'm going to separate people across the face of the earth so that they can't use their powers for evil. So God scatters the people across the face of the earth. He gives them different languages. He fulfills his own plan. And the people are left with the same desire that we see in the very beginning of Genesis. So this, this series that we've been doing in Genesis is called Fig Leaves. And the way that we get that is from the opening story of Genesis where Adam and Eve, when they sin, they realize that they're naked. And shame enters the world because they can tell right and wrong They can tell that they're wrong, and they know that they are now at odds with God. It's the primal human condition in sin to say, there's something in between me and God, I must cover myself. So what they do is they sew together fig leaves as an attempt to keep the wrath of God away, to keep the shame of sin away, to try to find a way to atone for themselves before God without actually going to God. And what God does when he comes to Adam and Eve is he takes a sacrifice and he uses that sacrifice to clothe them, to get rid of their shame, to create a way for them to come back to God and be with him again. See, the story of humanity is you were made to have an open and intimate relationship with God, that there was nothing in between you and him, that He knows you, you know him, you talk with him, you walk with him, and your life is filled with God's presence. But what happens when you sin is you become ashamed and averse to God's presence. See, what sin does is it doesn't just condemn us to death physically at the end of our life. It forces us to walk away from the one living and true God throughout our life. So this is the same thing for Christians. If you're a Christian, you say, my sins have been forgiven once and for all, but why do I feel so weird when I sin and now I'm kind of separated with God? It's not because you're not forgiven. It's because you're out of relationship. It's not not that God stopped being your father. It's not that you stopped being saved. It's that now all of a sudden there's a barrier between you and God. There's a fig leaf between you and God. And the fig leaf in this story is that people decided through self-reliance to build something for themselves without reference to God. And when God finally comes down, they realize that they are naked, that they're unsatisfied, they're unfulfilled, that all of the attempts that they've made have ended up getting them nowhere. In fact, what you see in the opening chapters of Genesis is this deep relational longing to be with God. And all the ways that we try to fill that longing other than just being with God. And on the flip side, what you see is God creating ways over and over and over again to cover his people and forgive them and walk with them and give them another chance and draw near to them in the midst of their sin. It reminds me of a friend that before they had their baby, he was so excited about the skin-to-skin. This has become like a huge thing now, the skin-to-skin time with dad. That's just the amazing thing, and he was so looking forward to that. And it's, it's an intimate relational time, and he was prepared for it because the moment the baby was born, he rips off his shirt, 
He's ready for the skin to skin. <laughs> but the thing is that you don't know on the front end that you know on the back end is it's going to be like half an hour before you really get to see the baby. So in the midst of that, and in his zeal for this moment, he had put his shirt on the cart that they then took out of the room when they cleaned the baby. So he's without a shirt in the hospital for like two and a half hours, waiting for this skin to skin. In fact, her parents show up, see him, they're like, what happened to you? <laughs> Finally, they get him one of those smocks that he's got to wear, and you look like both of you are wearing the smock. That's okay. That's interesting. He, he had a longing, and I never got his shirt back, actually. He, he had a longing for that intimacy that wasn't fulfilled, and that's the human condition. What we should see in the story of Babel is, if you orient your life around the value of Nimrod, around the value of self-reliance, the end is always going to be frustration, the lack of intimacy, the shame, the guilt, the scattering that you see at the end of this story. What's so fascinating about this story, though, is there's a reverse Babel story in the Bible. See, God doesn't just leave humanity at the Tower of Babel to just go on with history. In fact, what we'll talk about next week is he calls a person and he promises that he is going to bless them, he is going to give them a place, and he is going to make their name great. All the things that the people of Babel desired and couldn't have, God is going to provide for the, his people himself. And when you get to the New Testament, you actually get a reverse Babel story. You get all these people who have gathered together in a great city. In fact, a city that has a temple in the midst of it to where people from all over the world have come to worship the one true and living God. And these people have, have come, and they have a leader, and their leader is not a mighty hunter who has taken life. Their leader is a mighty Savior who gave his life for them. And they, too, though, have been left waiting for God to come. And instead of trying to build their way to God, what they're doing is they are longing and waiting and crying out for God to come to them. And in an upper room where they're praying this very thing that God would split the heavens and come down to see them. All of a sudden, a rushing wind comes and flames like tongues of fire rest over their heads. And all of a sudden, they begin to speak in different languages. And as they spill out of this room on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and gives this great sermon where he says, there's one name that can save. Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed for our sins, who went to the cross and died and has been raised from the dead, and now we, by his Spirit, by God drawing near, have been united around this new value and priority to make his name great. Amen. See, the people of Babel, they, they wanted to make their names great, and so everything they tried to do was futile. But the people in the New Testament, they realize that their goal in life, their central value, is to make the name of Jesus great. And so everything they build, all the technology they use, every barrier that is in front of them are overcome because God sends his spirit to be with them. On the day of Pentecost, God reverses Babel by saying, if you get your values right, 
If, if you understand that the central element of the human life is not to exalt ourselves but to exalt Christ, every single thing will fall into place. All the building, all of what we value, all of the things that God empowers us to do and take to the ends of the earth begin to fall in line. In fact, what you see is the New Testament church that now is on a mission to bring things back together to reverse Babel. There is actually no obstacle that stands in front of the church that prevents them from getting the message of Jesus across the whole world. Whereas beforehand at Babel, every single obstacle they hit proved the futility of their project. You read over and over and over again in Acts that they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were arrested, they had difficult things happen, they were killed, and the church grew and they were filled with joy and they were, they were in just amazement at the Holy Spirit because there's no other way that you can live the way they do and see the results that they did. So the message of these two stories is which way? Which value, which, which kingdom are you going to build? From the beginning of the, of the Bible until the end, it's Babel or Jerusalem. We will make ourselves great or we will make Jesus great. Those are the only two ways that you can live. You can either live like Nimrod or you can live like the believers who said there's one name under heaven under which we can be saved. The storyline finally ends in the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, you see a new city coming down from heaven. And it's a city that is so unlike Babel, it's the exact opposite. It no longer has a temple because the presence of God pervades the whole city so that they don't even need a sun or a moon anymore because the glory of the Lord is shining in this city. And people flock to this city not because they are the same, but because they are from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they've all been redeemed by the Lamb. They all have the same priority, the same value. And unlike Babel, which comes crashing down, it says this city will never, ever end. It is the eternal city of the Son of God. And all who cast themselves on Him, and all who believe in His name, will dwell there forever with their Father in heaven. Let me pray. Father, even as we say that this morning, we're reminded on Father's Day that, as Kerwin talked about earlier, you decided to introduce yourself to us as a father. That you created families to mirror your love for us. That we are members of earthly families, but more importantly, Lord, if we've trusted in your son, we are members of your family forever. So, Father, help us to remember that every glimpse we get of fatherhood in this life is a pointer to what you've done for us. Father, help us, as tempting as it is, to rely on ourselves. We know that with you, relying on you, you provide for every one of our needs. Father, you empower us. You fill us with your spirit. You send us out on mission. Father, give us a glimpse of all that you're doing so that we might take one more step each day to follow you. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these families. Thank you that the things that we build together and the things that we value in the center of our lives will never fail because you are the center. And Father, we lift that up in your name. Amen.